0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Minaj. This is the weekend edition. We have a very special show for you today. We have an amazing guest. She's an entrepreneur. She's an actor. She's been a model. She is an angel investor. She's a real estate investor, done many different things in her life, all the way from Sherman Oaks, California. Welcome to the show, Lisa Haysha. Hi, so great to be here. Great to have you here. Lisa, over the time that we've got to know each other, I'm astounded by your ability to transition, to shapeshift from one domain to another. We live in a world right now where people are typecast into very narrow pigeonhole. People, you might become, for example, a lawyer, but not only a lawyer, but just focus on very one narrow aspect. And you've not done that. Why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey?
1: I think as a kid, I wanted to be so many different things. At one point, I wanted to be a nun because I went to a Catholic school and I thought, oh, how cool for all these women to live together. It was like one big sleepover. But then I got to understand what happens in convents. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's a little too restrictive for me because I've got this other side of me. And I think your childhood really does have a huge influence on you in that arena because I saw my father, who's from Iraq, work in the morning, eight to 11, every single day, seven days a week till I was 16 years old. And when you see that kind of dedication to a job, and it's really just to pay the bills to survive. He had five kids, I have four siblings. So I was watching that going, oh my God. And I watched my mom be a housewife for my whole childhood, where she was cooking and cleaning, taking care of five kids and a husband all day, every day. And I think that really hit me and then I had an experience where I was out baking a cake a few doors down and my dad happened to be home. And when I came into the house, he went crazy that I was out when the street lights were on and he was saying, I want to send you to an orphanage. And at that time, we had our husbands picked out. We had, this is what you're going to do in life. This is how you're going to be. Everything was set. This is who you are. And if you go against it, you get the silent treatment and you get pitted against saying, the whole community will reject you because we had a big tribal family he was the 14th child and everyone had 5 to 9 kids so it was just like oh my god you have to stay in line otherwise you're excommunicated but once that happened when he when he said oh i could actually send you away to an orphanage i went what is that what a father says to someone and when i went to my room crying oh i want to leave i want to run away but i loved my parents so much too and i knew from indoctrination, that meant they love you very much, but it still hit me going, what if everything they're about is wrong and everything out there is right? Everything they're telling me is wrong is right. So that got my brain thinking in a different way. So I started going out hitchhiking and cars with only Hell's Angels type asking them, why did your life turn out like this? Why do you have tattoos? Why do you have no money? Why do you have a broken car? What happened to you? Are you going to hurt me? Are you going to rape me? My dad said this and that. And listening to their stories, they were like my angels. They opened up even farther window into all these different lifestyles. And they would share stories of, oh, I did this. Some of them were, I was an engineer and I decided to quit because I wanted out of the rat race. And then I did this and I did that. And I'm saying, all these careers within five or 10 years. And I'm like, wow, you're not stuck on, as a kid, what are you going to be when you grow up is a huge question. So that got me reading, got me excited about what's going on. And then a psychic came over when I was 10 and said, my maternal grandmother and told my mom that she, the psychic told her that she was going to marry a foreigner, have five kids, and one of them was going to be a star. So I mean, I get to be a star because then I thought, oh, it opens up so many things. So I started reading all about Simone de Beauvoir, all these women on men and Liz Taylor and Lauren Bacall, how did they do their lives? And I saw how they did 10 jobs before even becoming a star. So I went, oh, you're not locked in, I think subconsciously somewhere. So I moved to LA, ran away from home at 22, and started acting. And then it just wasn't working out for me. It was what my dad was saying, you know, I had me two situations and I had every role was three seconds of nudity, five seconds of nudity. So I was an ingenue and I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do that because of my background. So at about 25, I had a nervous breakdown of who am I? What am I? So I continued doing commercials and then I got offered to model in Tokyo through my commercial agent. So I did that. Then that opened my lens seeing all these big fashion designers and directors. And when you're a model there, I was with the Prince, you're with everybody. And you're hearing all these stories of these different lifetimes a lot of people had of this decade, I did this and this decade. I... So I went, oh, you could do anything. So after modeling, I spent all my money traveling. I went all over Asia, lived all over Asia, then went to Europe, then I made connections with all bearing companies over there who did trade shows for robotic equipment in different parts of the world. And then they hired me, they put me on salary to hold me to go send me like to Prague for a weekend. But then I'd say I would ha- need 10 days to get me there. So I would get 10 day trips at least every other month to Malaysia, Prague, Budapest, China, wherever, and then they would pay me a per diem there. So that opened my eyes too. So that's when I became a traveler. Then after doing that, I decided to go to Baghdad to discover my roots and go find that orphanage <laughs> that I was supposed to live in. And when I went there until Kef, the small Christian town, I walked in the doors and all the children were me at 16 when my dad said, I'll send you to an orphanage. Nobody loves me. Where I don't feel I belong. I don't feel like I fit in. Who am I? What am I? All these existential questions that a lot of us ponder maybe one or two at a time at various stages in our lives. And why is everyone bombing us? Why doesn't anyone care? Instead of bombing us children feel like nobody's getting them or understanding them. And I thought, wow, I need to memorialize these kids words. So I have to take responsibility. How am I going to do that? So as I, the company was sending me to different countries, I go, Oh, I have to go to the orphanage in each one and stay there for a week and learn about them. So I did that for five years And 15 countries later, I put a book together called Whispers from Children's Hearts. But all those children's stories taught me that we all suffer from a human condition of here's the rigid rules of life. You've got to be born. You've got to listen to your parents. You've got to get that job. You have to get married or you're not anybody. I was told if you actually get a job and make your own money, you have no value because that means no man you're not worth a man supporting you. <laughs> so if you start to decode going, oh wait, this culture doesn't feel that way. Oh, nudity is so bad and this and that. Oh, the French and the Spanish, uh, nude beaches everywhere. These countries don't feel that. You don't have to be able to shame about your body or having sex or all that. So it starts opening it up going, oh my God. So after that kind of made me a, an amateur journalist going around doing that, then I became an author and then I published the book and gave it to libraries and schools. Then I started being asked to speak everywhere. Oh, will you speak here? Will you speak there? When I was in Europe. So then I am started going on European tours at schools, teaching like second graders to sixth graders and bringing a globe and asking them questions. And what would you do? And if you had one wish and all this kind of stuff. And then high school started asking me and then colleges started asking me to speak. And then corporations started asking me to speak. And I'm like, wait a minute. It all stemmed from I'm craving to find my roots to understand Who am I? What what am I? And where do I belong? Because I had that break at 16. If I don't belong here and I don't belong there, the Middle Eastern world was too conservative. The Western world was too liberal and I didn't fit in. So I always felt like I was a fly in the wall from the outside, listening and seeing what other people experienced, but I couldn't participate because this was too crazy and wild, but this was too conservative. So after all of that, I said, I need to go get a degree in psychology because I now I understand life. And and I felt street smart. I go now I want to understand really from a clinical perspective, philosophy, psychology, what's been written about it. So I studied philosophy and psychology, then I got that degree, then I started working with people then from my experience on movie sets, I did a lot of films and TV and all that stuff. So from those people, they started asking me to be the therapist on set. So now I'm a life coach to all these high-end actors on these talk shows. I didn't plan it, but all of a sudden that's where I am because that's where when you just meditate and be in the moment, where do I fit in? Where do I belong right now and be open to anything? Then that just door started opening up. And then I started volunteering in prisons. Then I'm hearing these inmate stories. It's all women prisons. And how all of them were guilty in every male prison. All of them were not guilty. They were framed in some way. So I'm like, interesting, all the women are saying, I did it. <laughs> I killed this person. And I'm a lifer. And yes, these people deserved it. Because they were sticking up for their dignity and their rights and feeling men, starting with their father, rape them, abuse them, put cigarettes out on all the stuff. Then they attracted those kind of men. And at one point, they snapped. They don't want to take this anymore. So now I started becoming a life coach to inmates which made me create a program, like a webinar and a seminar to start teaching seminars. So now I'm teaching seminars, and I'm a life coach with them. I'm a therapist with these. So it just started spreading. Then I got married to a high end person who co created two and a half men big bang theory, you know, work on Roseanne, Charles in charge, Murphy Brown, uh, Darman, Gregg a, a whole bunch of shows. So now I'm with all these people and I'm on private planes. And then they're saying, Oh, why don't you do this? So I did the High level, $25,000 for three months of coaching packages. So now I became an elite life coach instead of. Uh, so then that just took off, and now everyone's asking me to write a book. So now I just finished a soul blazing book just a couple of weeks ago. So I'm going to give that to my agent. And then I wrote my story called Under a Baghdad Roof during the pandemic. But that one still needs another pass, but it's really strong now. And it's about going to Iraq in the 18 hour bus ride. It takes to get from Jordan to Iraq. And that goes back into memory lane of taking me to all these countries and the lessons I've learned and stuff. And some people, my agent called it like a Thelma and Louise of the Middle East because I met a girl on the way and we were in this trip together. So it, so it's interesting. So now it's author when it's going to, so it's, it's ever evolving. And then while I was doing the whispers from children's hearts thing going for five years, I started leading retreats and workshops because I was like, I want to go. Can I do it? I don't have the money. So I'm like, God, I looked it up. All these places that you could travel and volunteer, it's $7,000 for a week or $4,000 for a week. Plus, you have to pay for this and that just to go volunteer. So I said, okay, I created a program where it's free. All you have to do is bring a suitcase of stuff like medicine, shirts, souvenirs from your town. And bring it over there and come up with two or three games that you played or you learned to teach the kids. So it could be interactive and some money, whatever you have, and I brought money. And we would go to orphanages and pay for everything. What do you need? You need bug beds, you need chickens, you need goats, whatever it was, you need a floor, you need clothes. And we would hire the locals. So every dollar was accountable. We're not just giving to big organizations. So it was like being Oprah. So you're going to five or 10 places a day What are different teams? And it was just like, oh my God, this is extraordinary. So then you become a philanthropist and you start giving to these organizations. And since I had my child, I couldn't do that. I I adopted a child after all that, but then I couldn't travel as much. So I started organizations here, big nonprofit events where I brought in grassroots people doing good work who don't have the money, but managed to do a lot like Kids in the Spotlight. They have foster kids write, direct, and produce their own five minute shows and then they have it at fox with a thousand people in the audience and celebrities giving them the academy awards who best best actor best actress best director and limos give them free cars to drive them there and free wardrobe and stylists and makeup artists so watching these foster kids who had nothing be up on stage getting an award from a big celebrity and getting all that hollywood treatment was just life changing so i started putting my finances and volunteering and philanthropy into that's them.
0: extraordinary so yeah. I, i'm curious because after one of the things that really strikes me is that you're immensely observant and curious both at the same time if i think back to i don't know if you're familiar with the work of bowlby he was a british psychologist and he did work in orphanages post-world war ii and what he discovered was that here were these kids with all the creature comforts but none of the attachment and it was the lack of attachment that was really resulting in terrible outcomes wasn't the creature comforts. How did you address that aspect? Because I, I see that in your travels, you've been working hard to connect with these folks and, but how do you make that endure? How do you make that so that it is fulfilling and nourishing, not just for the day, but for a longer period?
1: What I did with them is I like Cambodia is a good example This wonderful man, Scott Neeson, he worked for, I think, Warner Brothers, and he did post-production and really helped market all the biggest films, all the Spielberg films and Titanic he did. Any huge $100 million project, he was on the road 300 and at least 300 plus days a year, he said. He had about two weeks off, he said, a year. And he took... Two weeks off in this particular year, which was about eight years ago, he stayed in Cambodia and he saw this sex trafficking and he quit everything over a year's time, sold his boat, his house, his cars, everything, and moved to Cambodia and started building up these orphanages. And I was there the first year he was doing it. And it was small and he had about 30 orphans in a small room. So I went there and I stayed there and slept on the linoleum floors and played with these kids and one kid couldn't even look you in the eye and was antisocial. And they said it's never I said a word while they were there. And the kid's been there like over a year, you know, like nine months or whatever, but in other orphanages before that. And I started doing mirror work with the child. So I sat there with her and I would just look out the window the way she would and just spent time being with her. Then your energies start to connect and you start vibrating at the same level. I always tell people if they want to be successful, they have to vibrate as a successful person. If you want to connect with someone, you have to vibrate with that person. Otherwise, you miss the boat. And in order to do that, you have to be observant. You have to be sensitive. So after a few days of doing that, she looked at me and smiled, which was huge. And then we slowly could have a conversation. And Scott said, I've been trying to do that for six, seven months, and nobody could crack her. What did you do? And then long story short, she endured what your your question is. She was able to communicate and be with people. So what I did was I teach mirroring and I teach heartfelt connection and eye gazing. So once I cracked her, we just held hands and looked at each other like that, looking soul to soul. And I would share with her that this is just like a blink of an eye this lifetime. And everything that happened to her was a gift for her to share and use for something else. Like we're all born for a reason. We all have a special gift. And what is your gift? And I told this to the inmates in prison. Yeah, you're there for a while. I was there with the bully. And she said, What are you doing here? I've been in here for 20 years. And you just come in here with your briefcase and your fancy clothes and your white and you think you could help us. And then I said, Yeah, I can. And I mirrored her ugliness. And once I did that, it snapped around. She just went, Wow, like you're one of us. And she started crying and said, You blazed my soul." So I gave her, same thing I did with this little girl, same thing I did in Iraq. I gave them a little note reminding them of who they are. I gave three qualities because I said, who would you like to be on a perfect day? Or who do you wish you were? Who do you admire? They would tell me. So I would give them these qualities. I said, anytime you feel like killing someone (laughs) or anytime you feel like you have no friends or you have no one who loves, you got to love yourself. And once you start really understanding and loving who you are at your core, Everyone else will start rising against you and you won't know what happened, but you're going to have all the universe's help. All these little foot soldiers are going to come and start assisting you out of nowhere. And I know I've felt that in my life because once I said, I don't care anymore and I'm going to go to Iraq, I'm going to go on that bus ride where I could get killed or kidnapped. It's Nobody hurts you. It's like, I'm invincible. But when you're scared... Like when I first went on a European trip right out of college, everything of mine was stolen. I could tell you 10 stories that went horribly wrong because it said, I'm a victim and I'm a new traveler. I'm a target, so come get me. But now I don't wear that tag anymore. Now I say, don't mess with me or I know what I'm doing and nobody does. So it's all of that. During Rodney King, I went right in the middle of the riots and everyone thought I was nuts and I got on the hood of my car, doing whatever. (laughs) Crazy.
0: I'll tell you something. So I was in San Francisco that week as well. My brother lived in L.A. at the time. He was a, about a block up from, you know, where Spago's restaurant is. Of course, yes. And so he would li- had that beautiful bird's eye view of half the city on fire. Mm-hmm. I was in San Francisco during that week. And so I was actually at Union Square and down at Fisherman's Wharf. And there were people literally walking up and over other people's cars. We were in the middle of it as well. I happened to be visiting San Francisco at that particular moment in time. And and it's funny because I could have felt just like you. Could have felt scared or intimidated, but it really it wasn't scary actually. Yeah. It wasn't scary at all. Fascinating.
1: Yes, once you feel you're there for the right reason or something, something shifts. And I had a superpower there. Nobody shot at me, nobody hit me, nobody bumped into me, nobody hurt me. And it was just to be part of, this is history. I want to be part of history instead of watching it on TV. Same in Iraq. I wanted to be there when they were bombing. What is going on instead of watching it on TV? What's the truth? What do these people feel? I was at a rally where they're going, we hate Americans or kill Americans. So my mission was... To get kidnapped—that's a whole nother story. Because I wanted them write a tell-all <laughs> book. <laughs> I love Christian Anaport, so I said it's too late for me to go to journalism school and get all the back story that she's had and all her experience. So if I got kidnapped, then I could interview my people, and they'll never hurt me because I'll know how to connect with them and vibrate at their level. So I will talk to them and then really share what's in the minds of these people, whatever. So I put myself out there, so nobody would touch me. So I'm like, oh, these people definitely will. They hate us. And as soon as the cameras were off, Habibi, come and eat at my restaurant. I'm like, no, you hate me. I'm American. And they're like, no, we have to do that for the cameras. Otherwise they'd get thrown in jail if they don't show loyalty to, I'm like, oh my God, can't get arrested. You can't do anything. (laughs) But it's the way you vibrate. It's, they didn't see me as a threat. They saw me as a family. They saw me as by the way you communicate with them. So same with these orphans, I started connecting with them and saying, this is who you are. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. The reason you're here is for a reason. You are more valuable than other people. You're here to teach the whole world something of world hunger and love and loving ourselves and started sharing with them these bigger truths and then gave them all a little sheet of paper of this is who you are. And I got told from these different places, oh, my God, these people are living by this, that um, prisoner ended up raising 75000 on a payphone for abused women when she was the bully of the prison who told me to get the hell out of there. Who am I to think I could change her life? I don't know her story or never lived her story. But when you could break the ice and say, no, we are all the same. We have different journeys, yes, but we've had millions of lifetimes. And this lifetime I just incarnated, last lifetime I was you, had your life, or I was a man, or I was... You start sharing, going, this is just the blink of an eye. Don't take it so seriously. Play your character. That's your character this lifetime. This is my character. This is so next lifetime might be totally different if you want to come back or not. Whether it's true or not, who knows? But just to have that in your mind of you're not a victim. You're here in a play. And if you don't like it, rewrite your script. You have the power to do that. And it's not overnight. You have to work on it each day. So I say, do your morning routine, do your meditation, come up with your quality. Who are you? Look at that quality every day. What are three things you're grateful for every day? What are you grateful for? Even if it's, I have feet, I could stand up. What are you grateful for? And start shifting that and spewing that onto others instead of hate. Because you spew hate, you get hate.
0: I love that. One of the things that you touched on, and I know that you started to raise capital at a young age before you even knew what you were doing. One of the things that I often see when I talk to people, it doesn't matter whether they're entrepreneurs or real estate investors and they're looking to raise money, there's a lot of stigma around it. It's it's almost as if they're desperate asking for money. One of the things I've observed in you is you don't ever ask people for money. You enroll them in a cause, which is completely different. Tell the story about your very first capital raise. I think it was for a movie in Japan, if I remember.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was when I got asked to model over there. And then I was seeing all the opportunity around me, and I just left acting. As when I was getting these roles, where I was feeling compromised if I took a part, but I still loved the art of filmmaking. So while I was over there, I was going, "Oh wow, there's so much money!" Just going to a club It's sometimes ten thousand dollars before you could even enter, and then that money is reserved there for certain bottles of alcohol that has your label on it. So whoever I went with, they had to pay that. But then I had a year entry into there, but you still have to pay bees for anyway, I saw the extravagance. This was 1989 and 90, where they were booming. And I went, wow, here's an opportunity. And then if you understand Japanese culture, they're really big on drinking, drinking every night, everyone goes out and drinks. And if you don't drink, you're an outcast. It's really a cultural thing. You have to do it, or you don't fit in. And I'm a lightweight and I have the best photographers in the world. And I am up five, 30 or six to walk a mile to the gym, work out for an hour, walk a mile back and eat a bowl of miso soup all day. Cause I weigh you every day and you have to whatever, stay a certain size. So I'm like, I don't want to drink every night and then wake up with a hangover and all that. So I just started telling the bartenders, give me a cut Anytime someone else wants that, I just made up a crazy name. Anyone else wants it put this much vodka and put this and that in it. So they can't keep up with me, but mine's cranberry juice. So they started doing that. And then I'd go cheers and they're like, wow, you could hold your liquor. Let me have some yours." I said, no one can drink on my glass cooties, get your own. Then they would ply it with alcohol. They're like, you could drink this. Yeah, come on. And then I got tired of doing that because I was still staying out till 1am or whatever. So I decided as a joke, I would just say, I'm not going out unless someone gives me $50,000. To talk about a movie idea I have. And people would go, ah, ha, ha, come out anyway. I said, no, I'm serious. Give me $50,000 to talk about my movie or I'm not going out. Because the Japanese, anytime you go out with them, they want to give you a gift, whether a 100 bucks or a, a, usually a crate of apples, because that's a sincere, lovely gift. And I'm saying, I don't want apples. I don't want $100, but I do want $50,000 towards this wonderful film about Asian culture. (laughs) And then they laugh. And then within a couple of weeks, someone said it became, there's that girl that won't do it. And everyone tried. I'm like, nope. So someone said, I'll give you $50,000. I said, it has to clear in my bank account. Okay. And then it cleared. And I'm like, is he nuts? (laughs) It's a joke. Are you kidding me? All right. So we sat down. He said, What's your idea? I said, it's a movie idea. What's the name of it? I'm like, oh, I don't even have a name for it. Um, psycho sushi, because I thought everyone was crazy because they're drunk getting drunk every night and making money and going just it was Candyland. And everyone ate sushi every meal. So I'm like, okay, psycho sushi. And then what's it about? It's about LA, because I live in Tokyo. I said, uh, cold fish, because that's what I went in, and hot sex, because there are sex clubs and love motels everywhere. (laughs) They're like, oh, that's that's very good. Yeah, they said, where's the script? I said, "Ah, nobody gives scripts, because you'll steal the idea. And nobody gives this, where's the budget? I don't have a budget. So he talked to me, then he said, let me go out with you again. I said, another $50,000. And then he said, he started laughing. I said, I'm serious, let me take you to the board of the company. So I went to the board with about eight to 10 Japanese men sitting there, stone face, they show no emotion, In The same gray suit. Yeah, gray or dark blue. Yeah. And they're sitting there. And then I said, Okay, guys, this is the story. Look at you. And it was all with humor. And I that's my secret sauce. I have a way of insulting or being rude to people with humor where they laugh at themselves that's long story short. So I would go look at you. I've talked to you. Your bad breath is so bad that if I didn't need something from you, I'd never speak to you. Look at you. You've got this going on. Look at you. And I would just poke fun of them. You're this, you're that. And they'd laugh at each other. Ha ha ha. What about him? What about him? It was almost like roasting them in a fun, loving way because they knew I liked them. They said, what's the bottom line? I said, you guys are all so boring and look at your lives. What stories do you have to tell? The latest hostess club you went to or the latest affair you had? I said, I'm going to sell you a story you're going to be telling your grandchildren. You're all obsessed with America. You all want real estate in America. How about for $1 million, I give you a year free pass to the LA. I know a lot of people. You can get the best investments without being ripped off by the real estate agents who see you as a Japanese sucker I'll set you up with the real people, the real this, the real that, and you get to meet blonde actors because you're the new money people in town to create films. And you'll have all the blonde actresses you want, and you get to be the star of the show, meaning the money in the room. I said, everyone's going to want to be your best friend. Your English is going to improve. You're going to have the time of your life stories to tell everyone. And if you lose the money, you would have paid it in taxes anyway. Their taxes were outrageous. Right. And they never got to keep money. Their salaries were small, but they got the company credit card. They got a car. They got a computer. They had everything they needed. car to go out to all the you know nightclubs everything they wanted to do but they didn't get the cash in their own bank account so i said you you lose nothing and you they pay enormous taxes i said so it's a million dollars for your personal growth and stories to tell i said look at me i'm here you know how much i've learned living here and it's been three months i said tremendous i don't want to leave i know there's so much more to learn Long story short, they said, okay, they said, where's the budget? I said, it's all bullshit. Budgets are bullshit. They just write in numbers. Then they move it around. I said, but I could say a million and it'll probably be a million two or something or a million 125 because that's how it is. I don't know why, but it's always goes over <laughs> the percentage. They're so like, okay. I said, so I know I'm going to ask you for a million. I'm going to probably ask you for a hundred thousand at the end of it or 200,000 to finish it and promote and all that stuff. So they laughed and I said, but the trick is you have to do it within 60 days because I have other people interested in it. And I said, but I'd rather work with the Japanese. And then I had the money in my bank account, I think within 30 days, a million bucks, just in my bank account, like total trust. And I went, oh my God, with no story, no script, no budget, nothing, just selling them on. This is the story you're going to tell your grandchildren was the main selling point. Oh, I'm going to tell my children. They took pictures and say, nobody believes I'm here. Even though I'm here, they think it's a set in Japan. Nobody believes I came to America. All this kind of stories. I'm like, wow. (laughs) Then I hired my taxi driver who drove the models, who barely spoke English to be my personal assistant because he was so awesome and so on it. They're so responsible. Yes. What are you doing with that guy? Go, you wait and see and watch him. doesn't matter if he speaks English or not. He'd wake me up with a hot plate with miso soup and this, give me a massage, stand right by my side. Everyone else's assistants are networking and trying to get the next job and getting in fights with people and petty stuff. And he's (laughs) right here. (laughs) See, (laughs) everyone laughed, but he was awesome. So it's like Uh giving people an experience brings so much joy it's not just about making money it's about sharing and sharing those experiences I still talk to them once a year and they did make their money back eventually they were about a hundred thousand short and they still ended up earning some money back they sold it in their country in Turkey and in Germany that really helped make it but it wasn't a great film because I wasn't an experienced filmmaker and then I had to write a script in three months and directed in LA and Nagoya and Tokyo (laughs) Well, I'm acting in it, I had a part and My part was in Japanese. I had to learn Japanese for that part. It was ridiculous to take on that much. And some scenes had a hundred people in it. Half the scenes did for hostess clubs and all. So it was very big undertaking. And they made me approve every check. So I couldn't even have someone else do that. I had to look at everything. And anyway, it was a huge challenging year. Fun, but really challenging. So that was my
0: film school. And really what that tells me is that They didn't buy the movie. They bought you.
1: They bought me. Yeah. They bought you. They bought the excitement of what it would be like to be in America with a cheerleader, introducing them to all these people and having fun. And they bought, we did have a good chemistry. I really understand the Japanese people. I understand all people because I want to understand them. I want to say, what's your perspective and your point of view? Because Just what I believe doesn't mean I'm right. It's just my programming that led me to have those beliefs. So what if I'm wrong is my question I ask. What if everything I think is completely wrong? And I think I got that trait by being 16. And my dad saying that to me, you don't belong here. We're sending you to an orphanage. How dare you do this? And I'm like, this is your father that you believe everything he says. And I know I'm not a bad person. So what if everything he's telling me is wrong? And I think I took that story throughout my life. So even my hardcore beliefs, I go, maybe I'm wrong.
0: That event was clearly a trauma. And Mm -hmm. for many people, trauma can be debilitating. For you, you've experienced post-traumatic growth.
1: I've never heard that before. Yeah.
0: There's a handful of people out there. I think of folks like Oprah Winfrey, great example of post-traumatic growth. And you managed to break past that. Now, there's probably other places where that trauma might be holding you or has held you back. But you turned that into something else. You flipped it on its head.
1: Yeah, without trying and without knowing what I was doing. It was right. by accident, really. Right. But right. it was almost like my when I moved to LA, everyone said, oh, you'll be back within a year. You can't survive. You're a fawn. You don't. You, it's tough up there. You're going to get clobbered. LA's brutal. And I thought, there's no way I'm going back. I don't care what it takes. I'm not going back to San Diego and saying I failed. It was just something strong inside of me. And I think I liked the excitement of the variety of people in L.A. Everyone came to L.A. to do something extraordinary and wanted a different life. So I felt I met my tribe. So I thought, regardless, I will do volunteer work. I will assist, which is what I did anytime I wasn't working. I was at a temp service. So just send me out on jobs. I do not care what it paid. Because I wanted to just be in different offices. How do you think? How do you work? What are you doing? And just seeing how businesses were put together and built. And so I worked on so many different jobs and met extraordinary people. And I think that helped also. I worked in the fashion district in downtown when I helped assist the person running a whole fashion line, Roberta wedding dresses, I was so good at it. Then they asked me to model. They go, oh, you're you're a model. Well, you model. And then they started flying me to these different showcases for buyers. Now I'm modeling it. Then they said, nobody buys these dresses. I said, watch, give me your ugliest dresses and give them to me. And I will sell them. They go, "Oh no, these don't sell. I said, I will sell them. Watch. It's not about the dress. And I did. I put on these ugly, like lime green dresses. And it's the way you walk out and twirl and say, oh my God, I love this. And I was, this amount of high school and this is it. I'm just sell, share a story and sell the story behind the dress. Then everyone started buying it. They're like, what did you do? You're like our little golden goose. And I'm like, no, it's all about story. Life is story. I was 22 at that time, 23. And I worked for this amazing Iranian company who did wrote all this philosophy and wrote these gorgeous books with velour covers with little fairy tales. So I watched them, how they put those together. And my job was to watch their commercials on TV to make sure they were played. So I had to sit there in front of a monitor every time it played. And 323 it played, 414 it played, 625 whatever. But I'm watching this go on in the background these great, brilliant minds writing all this incredible work. And I'm like, just let me read all your stuff all day long. So it's all these just varieties. And I worked for the BBC doing the last six episodes of Saving the Endangered Species. So I got to do the wildebeest, elephants, all this stuff where they said, call up and find experts, like three experts in elephants in completely different fields. So I found someone who wrote for Life magazine, and then someone who worked in an animal elephant sanctuary in Kentucky and this, then call them up and I'm talking to these Extraordinary people getting their story. How did you, you know do this? And how did you do that? How did you build that? Come down. So I'm like, now I get to go with the crew to go to an animal sanctuary in Kentucky. Out of nowhere, I'm a nobody. I just, I don't know anything. I'm just a simple, average girl. Like no privilege, isolated, sheltered. And it's just, I started creating these. and I'm like, wow, all these people are just normal people you don't have to be extraordinary to make it in life. You just have to be curious and stay open of who are these people? What is life really about? What do you know? And what do you think may be completely different? And just challenge people.
0: That is so powerful. I love that. That is so powerful. For the listeners at home, there's so many lessons in these stories that Lisa has shared. There's a lot of wisdom in this. You don't have to go looking for opportunity or hoping to find a deal. You create them out of your own imagination simply by being observant. And I think that's absolutely extraordinary.
1: Well, open to everybody, even people you don't like. Like I went to Rome and I went to the small villages where they really hurt. They're just, they only have Saddam TV they're devotees to Saddam. So we knocked down their doors and I said, we're American. Can we interview you? They said, we hate Americans. I said, I know. That's why I want to interview you. And then after the interview, they wanted to give us a gift. I'm like, what are you doing? And they said, oh, this is the only beats we have, like worry beads and an egg, a hard boiled egg. And I'm like, I don't need your egg. <laughs> They're like, no, nobody comes to our house without a gift. They said, we don't like you. We actually hate you. <laughs> would say, but you're in our home as a guest. And nobody leaves without a gift. It was just like extraordinary. But staying open to listen to someone who says, I hate you and America's this and you're this and blah, 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 blah. And you're here blah, 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 saying all these horrible things. They're just saying, okay, thank you for sharing. Let me hear. And then you just take it in and say, interesting. This is a whole set. This is millions of people. This one person's representing, but it, then it opens your mind to the pain they're going through, who they are, what their perspective is and how they have one slice of the media that they're allowed to hear. So they don't even know all of this is going on. So, I look at that. How is that in my life? How's that in your life? Everyone's life. We have one slice of lens that we're seeing the world from your parents' perspective. And then what you choose to see. And most people don't choose to see outside their little lens. Maybe they'll open it up 5%, but their whole life they're in that maybe 15% lens. But when you go like this, you're like, everybody's right. Everybody's wrong. It doesn't matter. It's a game. Play the game. And then it's fun because everyone's your friend. <laughs> Even if they're not your friend, they're your friend. Because in your mind, they're your friend. Even if you're their enemy, it's okay. You can hate me, but you're still my friend because you're a teacher. You're a soul teacher.
0: Lisa, if folks want to connect with you, perhaps on social media, on Twitter, what's the best way?
1: At Lisa Heysha, L-I-S-A-H-A-I-S-H-A. And Fantastic. Lisa Heisha at Mac is my email.
0: I love it. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you for sharing the story. For the listeners at home, there's so many powerful lessons in this. Uh, I know I'm going to listen to this recording more than once. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.